life great? I think even when it's difficult, it's still great because we live here. I think this is the greatest country and we are so fortunate to be the beneficiaries of all the men and women and children who have fought and who have sacrificed and done so much for the ideas that people should be able to live as they want, that they should reap the rewards of their labor, that people should be allowed to live in dignity, and that people shouldn't be subject to the whims of tyrants. I mean, these are the simplest ideas, and they seem incontestable, but it's extraordinary how many enemies we have because we support these ideas. It's enemies international, but what amazes me too, it's enemies domestic. And I think no other country in the world has done as good a job as we have of living up to these ideals. We don't do it perfectly by any means, but we're always striving and we're always correcting ourselves. And yet we've gotten for ourselves all these enemies and it's made us a target. And the thing that I wanted to talk about, so originally I thought I was gonna talk about what's happening with Iran and China and the Soviet Union. And that is a very big important topic, but I wanted to talk about a slightly different angle of this because it's become so personal. It's personal for all of you because of what you have to put up with being conservatives on your campuses. And now it's personal for me too. So last year was my first year at this event. And I th the thing that I came away with, the thing that stayed with me the most was the stories, like the stories we just heard. I could not believe what you all were suffering as a result of being conservatives on college campuses. It, it just, it shocked me and it amazed me that you all can withstand it and that you don't give up and you keep doing it. And then, but I was, um, I couldn't relate to it, honestly, because I'd never been through anything like that. First of all, it took me a long, long time to become a conservative. Um, I loved that, I think it was Peggy earlier who talked about what life was like in the 70s. I grew up basically in the 70s, and it was really hard to love this country at that time. And it was only when I started traveling to Central and Eastern Europe after the Berlin Wall fell that I really started to understand what America was about, and that's when I started to fall in love with it. So I didn't ever went through what you all have been through. But in the year since I heard you last year, I've been through it. And I know a little bit better now about what, you're, what you all are, are experiencing, so I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Um, as was mentioned in the introduction, um, I, did, I started out, uh, I did some time on the uh, Ted Cruz's National Security Advisory Team, um, and then I joined the Trump transition in October. And it was, honestly, it was a really glorious time because it was very uh, anonymous. You know, we all just worked in this building in Washington. We weren't involved with the campaign. We worked in this building in Washington just preparing for what some of us thought was really the off chance that he would become elected. Um, and on that note, I just want to say, um, when, I, when I really, it was maybe two or three weeks before the election, 
that I actually started to believe he was going to win. There was a wonderful woman um, who got up and had done this extraordinary analysis of the polling. And she got up and spoke to the whole transition team. It was probably a couple hundred people. And she had done this analysis, and she said that the, the polling that was being published was based on assumptions that were faulty. Assumptions about voter turnout that would correspond to the type of turnout under Obama, and she actually predicted that Trump would win. And it was absolutely glorious. It was such a great day. <laughs> I mean, you all lived through it too, but it was so great to walk into those offices uh, the morning after the election and just to all be there together, believers, people who'd fought, been fighting for this, um, who, who really believed in it and saw in this uh, not so much that he was the perfect candidate, but we felt that, that you know he was the best candidate we had, and this was going to be our opportunity to bring conservatism back to the United States. And one of the things that was so wonderful about that experience was seeing the many people who had been working in the shadows for the previous eight years, but didn't give up. And now they were coming back, and they were going to try to serve their country again and bring back the things that they believed in so much. But that was kind of the end of the glory period. Uh, the second the election was, uh, when he won the election, um, basically what happens formally in the transition process is you go from being um, sort of part of these anonymous policy teams to what are called landing teams and your name is announced publicly if you're on a landing team. The landing teams are the people who are, have been vetted and cleared, and you're the first people to go into your agencies and to start officially meeting with people in the agencies um, to be prepared to take over government on January 20th. Well, that's when I started to experience just how wonderful the left is. So I was one of the first people um, publicly named for the landing team for the Department of Homeland Security. And almost as soon as that happened, the lies started coming out, the articles, the things I was being quoted for that I had never said. It was absolutely amazing. And it was a combination both of journalists, um, but also people from, well, people who were working in the administration. I'll just say that. Um, but even that, even that period, was nothing compared to what followed after inauguration. Um, and it wasn't really so much my own experience, but what I experienced because of my husband. So you're all probably too young to even watch Fox television. You probably get all of your news from your, from your phones. But if you, walk, if you watch Fox, you, you would probably know my husband, Sebastian Gorka, because he's on Fox a lot. And thank you. So it was absolutely mind-blowing for me. So I'll tell you what happened. Um, we got invited to one of the inaugural balls, um, which is a scene because it's thousands of people, but it's still fun. And he was getting dressed that night. He's Hungar His family was Hungarian, but he was born and raised in the UK. And he was getting dressed in this traditional Hungarian outfit called a bochkoi, And it's what he wore to our wedding. So it's a it's like, got the, it's a, like a black suit with frogging. It's, it's beautiful. It's a traditional kind of Hungarian suit. And he has this pin that he had gotten from his father. So his father had served six years in prison for fighting communism. 
and um, was, had to leave the country, had to leave Hungary, had to live in the UK. And he, the fa his father was eventually recognized for his service to the nation, and he was given this award, the Order of the Vites, which is like a chivalric order in, in Hungary. And so my husband has the pin from his father. And I said to Sebastian, you know, because sometimes you wear it on the suit. And he said, should I wear this or should I not? And I said, I'll wear it. It's, I love it, you know. So he puts it on. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> the, the, the thing, what happened after that was just incredible. Because a magazine called The Forward saw this, because uh, Sebastian went from the inaugural ball backstage to do Hannity. Hannity was there broadcasting live from the ball. And somebody picked up on television that Sebastian was wearing the pin. So they do research. What's this pin? Well, it's this Hungarian order, which, honestly, I don't know that much about the history, but I, there was a time in its history when they uh, were, I don't think, I mean, I don't ever think they were fascists, but they, there maybe was some anti-Semitism or something, but they, they turned it into this whole thing where Sebastian was a neo-Nazi. And that was just the beginning. The incredible attack that happened to my husband was like nothing I've ever seen. And I shouldn't just isolate my husband because honestly the same thing is happening to our president. Have you seen the statistic? Something like 93 or 95% of all reporting on the president is negative. It's absolutely extraordinary what the press is doing. And, and we lived it. My husband, I think he calculated at one point in the first three months of serving in the White House there were 400 attack ads against him. They went after every single aspect of him and his life. After his PhD, they called him a neo-Nazi. They said he, his PhD wasn't a serious PhD. It was a friend who approved it. Um, that he was, he was not a serious academic, that he wasn't known, that he was marginal. I mean, they, they just came up with everything that they possibly could. Now, in the long run, I think it backfired because what happened was you know, I, I think clearly, um, and this makes sense, when somebody close to the president or in the White House is accused of being an anti-Semite, uh, Jewish groups are going to pay attention because that's not going to be a good thing for them. So they started doing, there were a bunch of individuals and groups that started doing their own research. They wanted to know. And it was great because they came up with things about, particularly about Sebastian's father that we didn't even know how he had... Um, helped escort uh, Jewish kids to school during World War II so that they wouldn't be grabbed by Germans and targeted. So in the long run, I think it really made Sebastian kind of a hero. Remember, he went to a big conference that was held by the Jerusalem Post. It's held every year in New York. And he said to me he was really nervous about going because he was afraid that there would be catcalls and, and protests. And he got there, and he got a standing ovation when he came in, and he got a standing ovation when he finished. Because the truth had come out, in spite of all these negative ads. Um, and I'll just tell you also one other, one other story in this whole period. Um, so I, I was already up at DHS, at DHS at this point, which if you know, that the headquarters of the Department of Homeland Security is up on the same traffic circle with American University. So I drive basically through the AU campus as I'm going home. So I was driving home one day, and I was talking on the Bluetooth to my daughter, who is a junior at Trinity College in Connecticut. And I was, we were just chatting. 
and I'm driving, and I'm like, oh, there's a demonstration up there. I'm driving, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's a demonstration against your father. <laughs> what do I do? And there was a group of about 15, 20 kids who all had signs that said, Gorka's a Nazi, Gorka out of the White House, things like this, and I was, I was so nervous. I was like, Lulu, what do I do? I can't just drive past this. I can't ignore this. And I said, I'm hanging up. I'm going to go talk to them. So I veered off, parked in the church parking lot, and I, went and I went over, and I talked to them. And I walked up, and I, I look like such a suburban mom. I walked up, and I said, hey, I just want you all to know that I'm Sebastian's wife. And somebody said, oh my god. And we had a conversation. And we went, it, you know, I just said to them, look, I, you know, I, I understand what y'all are doing. You're well-intentioned. But you need to know that these accusations have been fully disproven. The Jerusalem Post, various publications have come out and said it was all false. And they're like, what about the pin, the pin? And I said, let me tell you about the pin. I said, Sebastian's father got that pin because he served six years in prison from the ages of 20 to 26 for having fought communism in his country. And he got that pin to recognize his service to the country. So thank you all very much. See you later. And I left. And that was, that was, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. But I couldn't have driven past and not done it. OK, why do I tell these stories? Because I want to tell you that what you're going through, what we are going through, is not new. And I want to tell you a couple stories from history that probably most of you have not heard that I think are really important for you to understand. Because I want you to understand what's going on. And by understanding it, it will help you to also better know how to fight it. Information warfare. I think it's the most important topic that's actually not taught in school. I don't know why we don't teach it, because I think it's incredibly important. It's becoming, I can't tell you how big it's becoming. I mean, this is a lot of what I do in my job, and it's not just terrorist use of the internet, but it's, it's everybody. It's, it's China, it's Iran, it's Russia. You know, part of what's happened is that we have achieved such military superiority, no one's going to go after us militarily. So they are going after us in other ways. And one of those big ways, they're going after us a lot in cyber, but one of the big ways is they're going after us through information warfare. But it has a long, long history. Let me just tell you, I'm just going to tell you a couple of key moments from that history. Okay, 1920, Sacco and Vanzetti. Do you, know, do you all know the name Sacco and Vanzetti? Raise your hand if, you, if that's a familiar name. Okay, a few. Um, Sacco and Vanzetti, 1920, Braintree, Massachusetts, outside Boston, Massachusetts. Big area for immigrants, a lot of Italian immigrants, a lot of shoe factories, shoe, what would you call it, shoe manufacturers. Um, Two men were carrying the payroll for the shoe company in metal boxes, because people were paid in cash in those days. They were carrying the payroll to the company. And they were robbed and murdered. 
Two men were accused of the murder. They were Italian-born anarchists. And again, the anarchist movement, I think it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a very fascinating thing to know about. We hardly talk about it anymore, but it was huge at the time. Um, they caused a lot of, um, uh, there were a lot of bombings, there were assassinations, a lot of destruction um, by the anarchists. There was a lot of fear of the anarchists because of the damage that they were doing. Um, very, very big publicized case whether these two men, these two Italian anarchists, were going to be found guilty or not. And to tell you the truth, to this day, it's still debated. There are people who argue strongly on both sides. I don't think there's really a conclusive answer. But what's important is not the case itself, but what happened with the case. So keep in mind, this is 1920. The Bolshevik Revolution had happened three years earlier. Lenin had this vision for a revolution that would bring in all the leftist movements of the whole world. But he knew that it would be very hard to get the United States under that umbrella. So they came up with a different strategy. Rather than directly try to bring the United States in immediately, what they wanted to do was discredit the United States. They wanted to paint us as racist, as anti-immigrant, and as imperialist. And what they saw in the Sacco and Vanzetti case was the perfect opportunity to do that. So what did they do? It was, I, there are whole books written about it, so I can't go into all the many, many layers. They held, the, 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 the Communist Party held organized rallies around the world. There were demonstrations across the globe at American embassies, all organized by the Communist Party. And the whole point was to show that the United States was this racist, anti-immigrant country. And they did worse. I mean, they, 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 had, they had like agents of influence here in this country. They got people to write newspaper articles about it. They had, I mean, there even, uh, allegations that there were women who were influencing important cultural figures to get them to write about it. It was a massive case, and that's, that's one of the reasons why it's such a well-known case is because the degree of publicity given to it by the Soviet Union as a way to tarnish the image of the United States. In the end, it was a huge win for the Soviet Union, and the amazing thing is it was on a battlefield that we didn't even know existed. We, we didn't even know that this was happening. We didn't know what the Soviet Union was trying to do against us. So we, we, we were, couldn't even begin to fight back. There were several other incidents in the intervening years, but there was another big case very similar 10 years later, 1931, the Scottsboro Eight. So the story is, there were um, actually nine boys, African-American boys, ages 13 to 20, who were on a train. They were hoboing on a train. This was during the Depression, right? A lot of people were sort of train jumping and moving around. And while they were on the train, they got into a fight with some white boys. So the white boys lost the fight. So they complained to the conductor. 
The conductor called ahead to the next town and said to the police, when this train stops, I want you to arrest all the Negroes on the train. So they pull into the town, the police are there, they scoop up these boys. In addition to the boys, there were two white girls, two young white girls who sounded like kind of tomboyish. They were dressed in men's overalls. They realized this looked really bad for them because they could be charged with vagrancy or you know, hanging out with these African-American boys. So they accused the boys of raping them. So this led to a really serious set of trials. It was actually broken up into four trials. It's, it's a very important case in our history as a nation because it was considered a pivotal moment in the beginning of the civil rights movement because it was a terrible case. I mean, the boys were so unfairly treated. <laughs> four different trials, four all-white juries, all eight boys, only there was a, a nine-year-old, uh, sorry, the 13-year-old, the ninth boy, was not sentenced to death, but the other eight were sentenced to death. So it's important for us in our nation, and it's, it was a terrible case. But the reason I mention it now was because it became a huge case for the Soviet Union, because again, they saw in this an opportunity to go after us to tarnish us, to make us look bad. One of the things they did was they organized a European tour for one of the mothers of the boys. They, they arranged for her to go to 16 different European countries over a six-month period. There were over 200 demonstrations against the United States organized by the communists. And the speech that she had to read, in, in the speech that they gave her to read, which mentioned the boys, to be sure, but she also had to denounce the fascists, that's us, and called for the mobilization of the masses against the imperialist power. Again, that's us. So again, I think you know, it, was, it was an important moment for us, but again, it was a huge win for the Soviet Union in this, in this information warfare against the United States, and we didn't even know it was happening. Now, this went on for a long time. Um, by about the 1960s, this, this continued to be a key strategy for the Soviets against the United States. By the 1960s, they had an estimated 700 people working full-time on disinformation against the United States and propaganda. And they were doing all kinds of things. So they were supporting front groups. You know, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of documentation now about the peace movements of the 60s. A lot of these were engineered or funded by the Soviets. They were doing covert broadcasting. They were forging documents. Um, they were spending money buying agents of influence. Um, they were even killing out assassinations and terrorism. What were some of the big ones? 1963, um, they came out with a, a, a big story that Kennedy had been killed by right-wing racists with the assistance of the CIA and the FBI. Uh, they came out with a big story. This, had, this one had a lot of traction, actually. It's still kind of out there, that the US created AIDS. Have you heard that one? Um, they were able to discredit diplomats that they did not like 
This is starting to sound familiar. Um, one of the big things that they did, one of the most damaging things that they did, 1979, November, there was a very famous incident in the history of sort of the Islamist fight, which was the siege of Mecca. So there was a um, kind of extremist uh, Wahhabist cult in Saudi Arabia that actually took hold of um, the mosque, the great mosque of Mecca. And um, the Soviets actually said the US and Israel were behind it. So as a result, and they, that was broadcast in, in a number of countries, and as a result, for example, in Pakistan, our embassy was attacked, people were killed um, because of that, because it generated so much anger. And we paid some attention to this in the 1960s, but we essentially, for, for a lot of reasons, and I don't want to take the time to go into it now, but we kind of took our eyes off of it in the 1970s. We stopped paying attention to it. But there were three men who said, this is really important. What the Soviet Union is doing to the United States is super important. And we're going to continue to pay attention, even though it's not a priority of the government. And it's not a policy to, to fight against it right now. Herb Romerstein, Angelo Cotevilla, and Ken de Graffenried. I just think they're heroes for what they did. So they continued to pay attention. And what they did was, they were all, I, I think they were all three staffers on the Hill, maybe one on a committee, two in, two in some in congressional offices. But they continued to work because they knew it was important to uncover what the Soviet Union was doing. So that what happened was, Little by little, by exposing the truth, by uncovering what the Soviet Union was doing, they were able to maintain some interest in this. And, and as they could bring their case and sort of document the types of things they were doing, at that time, like one of the big things the Soviet Union was, do, was doing was um, creating forgeries of, of letters, like to discredit the president. So that by the time Ronald Reagan came in, he understood all this very well. Ronald Reagan understood communism like nobody else. And part of it was because he had lived with it. When he was head of the Actors Guild in Los Angeles, he saw up close and personal what the communists were doing. And so he understood it very, very well. So he understood what the Soviet Union was doing and what their tactics were. So by the time he came into office, he was able to take the work of these three men and turn it into this much bigger thing called the Active Measures Working Group. Which again, without spending too much time to go into the details, but was one of the Active Measures Working Group, then became this fully staffed organization, interagency, that was able to expose what the Soviet Union was doing and to turn it around and use it against them and to pressure Gorbachev. And it raised the cost for the Soviet Union of having this disinformation campaign. And it was one of the things that helped bankrupt them and bring about the collapse of communism. I have always loved this story. Um, 
when I first, so I lived for many years in Hungary, but when I came back in 2008, I was hired to start a think tank that would deal with the threat from Islamist terrorism. And I was hired to create this think tank by somebody who believed that it was something we didn't understand well enough and we needed to educate people about it. And it was a really lonely job because it was a, you know, it was a hard thing to talk about. There was a lot of resistance. Um, anybody who sort of was dared talk about it was called an Islamophobe. But I, I took inspiration from the Active Measures Working Group because I knew from their example that just a few people exposing the truth can have a profound difference. They can change history. A moment will come when you will have a Reagan who recognizes the truth, who's willing to stand up for it, and who will turn it into a historic change. I, I, can, I can name some other more contemporary examples because this may seem like ancient history, but I, I would put into the same category as the people from the Active Measures Working Group think about Lila Rose or James O'Keefe. You know, the work that they did and others to expose the selling of fetal body parts by Planned Parenthood is having incredible ramifications now in Washington. It was seemed like such a, a small and brave thing at the time, and it must have taken, I, I still can't believe they did it. But it led to a massive congressional testimony. It's led to any number of criminal charges. What's fascinating that a lot of people don't know, the person who ran the congressional uh, the special investigation in Congress, March Bell, and expose it all, is now at HHS, and he is going after Planned Parenthood. And there are incredible things being done to help end that incredible crime of the selling of body parts. And I love the work of James O'Keefe as well. Look what he's just done the exposure of the New York Times, I love it. So, two points that I want you to come away with. When you look at the history, don't be discouraged. I know you're walking a hard road, and I know right now, I can hear it in all your stories, how isolated you are, how you feel like sometimes you're the only person fighting this hard fight, but there are people that have gone before you that have fought like that alone, and they have managed to change history. And you can do the same. And I'll just say, when I get discouraged, and trust me, I get really discouraged. You know, I, was, I wanted to just, say one thing. I mean, one of the things that I've had to recognize over these last couple months is that I, I read somewhere that one of the reasons that a lot of women don't choose to go into public office or into big leadership roles like CEO roles is because they are not comfortable with the exposure and the public criticism. Yes, <laughs> I totally get that. I mean, it's terrifying when I get a call from Rolling Stone magazine and they're telling me they're doing an article about me and Sebastian and I'm, am I willing to talk to them? It's like I start quaking in my boots because I know it's going to be another attack article and it's terrible. 
But when I have those really discouraging moments, Sebastian always reminds me about his father. And he said his father, he reminds me, his father put up with six years in prison for the idea of freedom. And I just say to you, when you feel discouraged and it feels overwhelming, remember the people who are in prison or the people who are suffering and fighting and fight for them. It's not just you, fight for them as well. And I also want to reiterate that even as one person alone, you can achieve extraordinary things. And the history shows it. I loved the theme for today. I, I, I didn't know it was going to be a theme. I don't know if it was planned or if it was spontaneous, but it was exactly what I wanted to say. This notion of being a courageous communicator. I just think it's what we really need, and I think you're all heroes for doing what you're doing, and just keep on doing it. Thank you. Questions? No? One back there. Thank you. Hi, um, my name's Claire McKinney. So my question for you, um, and it was kind of if I could have your help on something, for one of my classes right now, the professor, a good portion of our class is what he's calling a CNN debate. So we have to go up to the front of the room and he's literally going to video record us and we have to pretend we're an expert on something. And so he assigned the topics and he, he is big on the tenet of nonviolence. And so the topic he gave me is peace building strategies that exclude the use of military force are adequate to deal with terrorist networks, especially those with a global reach. So I was wondering if you had any tips or like talking points that you would recommend to use for that. All I can that. say is invite him to go live in Yemen. <laughs> I mean, the, this makes me crazy. Um, yeah. Okay, so sorry. Let me just. <laughs> Let me just take that seriously. Um, I can't. I mean, I'm sorry. Really. It's terrible. I get so, I get so, is that La La Land? I mean. Yeah, it's one of the things, and it's a class at the Kroc Institute for Peace Studies at Notre Dame, and it's something I found very concerning is they're saying they're a champion in the peace building field, but they're completely opposed to looking at any sort of form of physical like Actually, I'll tell you what I would direct you to. So there's a mm -hmm. great new publication called Providence, um, which is bringing uh, a Christian worldview into public affairs. It's only a year or two old, and actually, I'll connect with you afterwards. There's one particular article. If I were you, I mean, there's a whole, you can really take just war theory. I, I would come back at them using their language, and, and I would go to just war theory, which actually provides the justification for the use of force in certain cases. And I would turn it around. I mean, I loved um, Rachel's advice this morning. Half of why I come here is to get to hear her speak, because I think she's so, she's so good and, and, and helpful with what she says. But I think one of the things that she said that was so good was, you know, kind of take it, 
but then go over here with it. So um, I will direct, there's a particular article that I'm thinking of. There's a person who's very good on just war theory sort of in the contemporary context. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you'd find in there some of the arguments that you're looking for. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And I just say one other quick thing too about media. One of the things that um, Rachel didn't say, but one of the things that, that, that I was taught that I think is really, really helpful when you have an opportunity to go in front of the media or to be on radio, you always want to go in with three points that you want to make. And you can almost sort of ignore what they're asking you and just make your three points, and, and, but know what they are before you go. So like with you, you know, find the things, that, the points that you want to make, and you find a way to make them even in that context, which doesn't seem to be in your favor, you know. Sorry, there was a question. Hi, my name's Gianna. I go to Rutgers and I'm a freshman. Um, I had a question about how uh, you would deal with uh, liberal professors because uh, when I was in high school, I had a feminist English teacher who said because I was interested in joining the military that I would get raped there. So I was wondering how do you combat um, liberal professors who judge you and would say very, uh, insane things very calmly and respectfully? I mean, I feel like I, I, face kind, I, I face a similar thing in DHS right now because I'm, I'm, I'm in with people who obviously are careers or who were brought in under Obama. Um, and you, you can't just ignore it or, or tear it down. I mean, it's hard to dissuade people. And, and the thing that I always fall back on is um, come in with the data, come in and challenge it factually, be prepared. That's the thing that I find that works the best. You're not gonna be able to fight back on, on sort of grounds of um, sort of anecdote or, or reason, but I think if you, if you, it's something that's maybe worth researching, be prepared with a response, you may not even get the opportunity to provide the response, but now you know that that's a challenge that's being offered to you, be prepared to come back and say, you know, whatever. It does, this doesn't happen, da, 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 down the road. I don't know, we all have to deal with crazy people, don't we? Hi, I'm Allie. I'm studying international security at Georgetown University. So this is kind of specific. Um, so given that the Islamic State is using social media to radicalize and recruit, what do you think is the best strategy to combat that other than just you know, providing a counter narrative like through the Global Engagement Center? Oh, this is what I spend all day every day working on. So um, I have ended up, I've, I've ended up really focusing on two things. One is you know, um, shifting our focus away from countering violent extremism to now it's gonna be more terrorism prevention. But, there's been a huge increase in attention on this question, particularly since the, um, there were the Manchester attack and the London Bridge attack because social media played such an important role in those. So the UK has been kind of leading the charge and really come to, coming down on the social media companies. And they created the GIF-CT back in, in July, the Global Internet Forum for Counterterrorism, which is the four big companies with a bunch of smaller companies. The problem is, you know, they can't not put their effort into taking down pages, right? Because that would just sort of be neglectful. Um, but it's just not nearly enough. Um, 
I actually, and it's what's very challenging is what's the role of government? So there's a big impulse to get into, in fact, we're doing it. I mean, there's a whole lot of programs that are all about building community resilience, and if we can just make people feel more integrated, then they won't turn to radicalism. Um, I, so I think you get into very big questions about what's the role of government. Um, I don't like it when the government becomes the thought police. So I personally feel like we need to shift to a very um, strong law enforcement role, and I think there's so much more that we can be doing in that area. And, and one of the big things is um, there's a lot of t incredible amounts of technology that are available now uh, to, to do an analysis of social media, analysis of hardware, of cell phones, um, but most of our law enforcement and by that I mean law enforcement writ large. So not just police, but like Customs and Border Patrol, ICE, even FBI, they don't have that technology in their hands. So I actually think, and, and, and like another big issue is, um, which is very much related, how do you get data from the battlefield to where it could be used for law enforcement purposes, right? You have somebody, let's say you find a, Let's say you find an IED in, in Iraq and it's got a fingerprint on it, so you're able to know that that person, somebody you know, was involved in building that IED. How can you then get that, make sure you get that fingerprint so that you can trace it, make sure that person's not getting on planes and coming back here, that type of thing. Um, this is where actually I think our focus needs to be. I mean, there's a lot that we can also be doing, I think, to elevate, um, the sort of narrative challenge, but probably most of that has to be done through third parties, right? Government can't really do that. It's, you know, but we can be supporting people to do that. Um, personally, I, but I think, I, I think there's a lot to be done in the technology space, too. Any more? Okay. Oh, one more. I'll, I'll take, all right. Um, I know you talked about the information wars. Uh, do you have any books that you recommend that cover that topic that you would have the girls here read? Oh, I, you know, I feel really bad because I really wanted to make a reading list and I didn't do it. Um, um, the, the best... Okay, I'll send, I'll put out a reading list, but um, one of the best sources is um, Michael Waller. If you remember the name, if you're interested in this, Michael Waller, who was a professor at the Institute of World Politics, is probably the leading person on this and he put a great reading list on, on a website, and it's, I think if you just Google his name, you'll, you'll J. Michael Waller, um, you'll get to it. But I'll put, I'll put some things down, because uh, I think it's a, it's a fascinating area, and it's, it's you know, I, I actually think it's super important for us to understand it, because these are the tactics, not only that the left is doing, but I think a lot of it's being fueled from outside the United States. And, you know, I'm pr I pray that eventually it will be exposed for what it is, um, but we need to be paying attention to it and, and trying to understand where it's coming from. Uh, one last question. Hi, this is uh, somewhat tangential, but I wanted to ask your opinion on the balance and the relationship between uh, privacy and security, um, citizenship rights and also the need for, you know, the Department of Homeland Security to do the, our, the best they can with the most information they can. Yeah. Well, the thing is, with social media, a lot of that got 
um, sort of nullified because it's publicly publicly available information. So, you know, you kind of give it up a little bit that when you start posting on Facebook or whatever. Um, I think it's going to be a debate that we have in a whole new way like we've never had it before because uh, social media, digital, digital communication technologies have completely changed the landscape. And we're way behind in the conversation about what it means um, on, on issues like civil rights, civil liberties, and privacy. Um, whether it's going to require legislative changes, um, you, you know, I think even that's, that's a possibility. But honestly, it's such a game changer. Um, it's gonna it's gonna require I think a lot of interesting conversation I think it's something if it, I think it, and it's a kind of thing that if you have thoughts about it or concerns about it that's a great thing to have a conversation around and one of the things that I wanted to say earlier when you when we were talking about um, how how can you have these conversations on your campuses so there are a lot of different ways to do it right you can go the the Milo route and be really <laughs> confrontational. <laughs> Or at the, far, at the other far end, um, you can do things like have conversations on issues where free speech might be a question or privacy. It would be really interesting, actually, to have that conversation about privacy with people from the left, right? Because that's one of the ways, that's one of the things that we as conservatives feel strongly about, both to have our free speech protected but also to maintain our privacy. And I tell you, one of the areas where it's coming up a lot right now is all the pressure to designate domestic terrorist groups in the wake of Charlottesville. Um, they're ignoring Antifa, but as because of Antifa as well, you know, we do not designate any group as a domestic terrorist group. And that's because we think people should be allowed to say whatever they want. Now, if they cross the line and break a law, and kill somebody or cause violence or whatever, we'll arrest them on those grounds. But we don't have domestic terrorism. So that's another big conversation to be having right now. Do we want to go down that road where we designate groups as domestic terrorist groups? And I say no. I, I hate Antifa. I think they're terrible. I, you know, the right-wing extremists as well. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's really bad. But the second you start designating groups as terrorist groups, you start to run into really big problems. But these are all, these are the questions your generation is gonna to have to deal with and solve. So I wish you the best. <laughs> Thank you.